There are a lot of people in the church that are waiting for some miraculous call, some parting of the clouds and light shining down on them to step into doing something for God. And I think for a lot of us, God is actually just waiting for us to say, here am I, send me. It says here, if anyone aspires, in the Greek, that means to reach out for. And it also says desires, which means to have a passion for. So that's a question for you today. What do you aspire? What do you desire to do for God? Next, he gives us some qualifications that we would have to have in order to be an overseer, a pastor, an elder. In this church in Ephesus, they had some bad leaders that were struggling with some big things. So let's look at verse 2. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He manages his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, that's a lot of things to unpack in these few verses. But Paul makes it clear that if someone wants to be a leader, they have to be worthy of being followed. See, a church leader must be someone that is able to lead their family well, or else they could, uh, how could they be trusted to lead a church family? My ministry, first and foremost, as a pastor, is to my children. If I somehow get hundreds of converts for Christ and I lose my own children, I have failed as a pastor. See, a church leader, it says, shouldn't be violent. One version says that he shouldn't be a striker. And that's cool, because I'm more of a grappler anyway, right? <laughs> I'll wrestle you down. No, but it says they're not supposed to be violent, be a drunkard, not greedy or, uh, greedy or materialistic. Not an arguer. They should be characterized by being respectable, serious-minded, self-controlled. They love outsiders, able and ready to teach, gentle, a mature Christian, and well thought of by people outside the church. Now, these are great, right? These are always probably subjects that we've read through and said, like, this is what a pastor should look like, but how does that apply to me? Like we mentioned, these are things we all should strive for. These are good things for all of us to do. Our leaders need to be held accountable, including me. I've seen some, uh, a lot of pastors buy into the praise that people uh, say about them, and they let their heads get the size of houses, and then they fall into sin. On the flip side, you've also probably seen pastors that have bought into the criticism, and they allowed themselves to get depressed and, and ineffective. My father-in-law's a pastor. He's been a pastor for 30 years, and he told me this early on in my ministry. He said, criticism and praise are like perfume. Sniff them both, but never swallow them. And that's been a thing. Look, the, the people will tell you they love you, they love you, they love you. Don't buy into that. You're still just a sinner. You're still just, you know, the same old person you always were. But they'll do that on the flip side as well. They're criticized, criticized, criticized. Don't buy into that. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. We need to make sure that we balance those two things. See, someone that wants to be a leader is someone that is worthy to being followed. I believe that every church member should strive to be the people that are described in these verses so that we are the best 
witness possible in our community. Uh, Dayton Hartman said this, Paul's qualifications show not only the kind of leaders a congregation should seek, but also what it means to be a mature Christian. Next, he goes on to give the qualifications for deacons. Deacons are uh, helpers that come along the pastors and the elders, and they tended to the widows, and they uh, tended to the orphans, and they helped shepherd the church. They encouraged the faint-hearted, and they prayed with people. They served the congregation. Verse 8 goes on and tells us a little bit more about deacons. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I like that last part of the verse. It says, for people that will serve are going to end up having greater faith in Jesus Christ. It says here that deacons need to be reverent, not known for speaking out of both sides of their mouths, not drunkards, not greedy. They must be faithful, mature Christians. And once again, the home life comes into play in it with the descriptions about wives and children and how they behave. Now, some scholars, if you go back to that uh, section of verses, um, let me see here, verse, I think it's probably verse 10. Uh, it talks about how the wives, likewise, must be dignified. Now, some scholars believe that that word translated wives there could also be translated women, meaning that women could serve as deacons. And there's a little bit more evidence to that as well because the fact that uh, here it gives uh, requirements for the wife, but it doesn't give a requirement for the pastor's wife. And that would seem like that would be a strange thing to do, to require the pastor's wife uh, to have some things, but not to require you know, the opposite of that. The deacon's wives, but not the pastor's wives. Anyway, moving on. Verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, a buttress of truth. Paul said he was eager to see them, but he couldn't wait to tell them these things, so he wrote them a letter to give them instructions. We've talked about so far what instructions are. Instructions are simply putting the right things in order because there's some things that were out of balance in the church of Ephesus. There's some wrong priorities. There's some things that uh, needed to be fixed. They needed to get their house in order. And Paul says the church is important and it needs to be grounded in truth. What is the truth? It goes on in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. When Paul mentions this mystery, uh, that is the things that were hidden in the Old Testament that are revealed in the New Testament. And then he quotes from an ancient hymn and goes on and speaks to more about what those mysteries were. There's so much uh, truth found in these next words in verse 16. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. 
Praise the Lord. I love it when he pauses here and just gives us a little bit about Jesus because Jesus walked this earth in the flesh. He lived a sinless life and was revealed by the Holy Spirit. He preached among all the nations and believed on by many people after the resurrection, and he ascended into heaven. That is called the gospel. That is what we are all about. And the gospel is something that you need to know. It's something that you need to meditate on. You need to preach the gospel to your heart. Preach the gospel to your neighbor. I've, I think I've mentioned this before. There's an old hymn that used to say, tell me that old, old story. That story that never gets old. We'll never get past the gospel. We only drive our hearts deeper into the gospel. The church needed to get some things in order. And Paul reminds them what numero uno is, and that is Jesus Christ. We saw an in-depth description here of what godly church leaders look like. Next, in chapter 4, he jumps back into what false teachers look like. Now, why does Paul spend so much time talking about false teachers in these letters to these new churches? It's because false teachers and false leaders are a real threat to the church. And we need to be watchful and careful that we don't get duped into believing things that are not true, things that are not found in God's word. See, the things that we see in God's word, we must hold super tightly to those things. And everything else, we've got to make sure that we understand if it's not found in God's words, we need to hold loosely to it. Tradition and denominational things, and if they're not found in God's word, then we need to think about those things. See, Christians should be known as people that defend the truth, even when the truth doesn't support our arguments. In this fake news era that we live in, this is more important than ever. We need to be careful and pray for discernment to know the truth. See, false teaching many times is just unbalanced teaching. Parts of it are true, but they sway too far to one direction, too far conservative, and we're in danger of being rigid and legalist, too far progressive, and we're in danger of being loose relativist. And a good indication of a good balance is when the right and the left both think you're wrong. That's a good place to be in, right? It's a scary place, and, and it's harder, but it's a good place to be in. Next, uh, we remember that Jesus not only received persecution from the religious elite of his days, but also the morally loose Romans, and the one thing that they could decide on was what? Killing Jesus. Next, chapter 4, verse 1, says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul here warns that the Holy Spirit makes it clear that Jesus comes, uh, uh, that, that there will come a time when people will abandon the church. There will come a time when people will leave the church. And Paul had already warned the church of Ephesus that those uh, ravenous, those fierce wolves would sneak in to the church and twist scripture around and pull people away from God. 
The Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies, and he is working overtime to deceive the church. And many false teachers will knowingly and sometimes unknowingly spread that deception. And one of the ways we can tell uh, false teaching and where it, uh, what it looks like is if they come up with extra requirements for believers that are not found in Scripture. Here Paul mentions a couple of them. He said these false teachers in this church were telling people that they should not marry and that they should stay away from certain foods. But here Paul uh, tells them that uh, those were uh, Old Testament ceremonial laws and they were taking those things and they were twisting them and requiring them of all people. But see, under the new covenant in the New Testament, after Jesus Christ tore the veil, God says all food is holy if it's given thanks for. So now you can eat pork. Can I get an amen on that? Amen, right? We just went to... uh, uh, the Hickory House in Jane Lou the other day. That was awesome. And I ate some pork barbecue. Praise the Lord. I was singing hallelujah about it, right? We can also eat lobster, right? Amen. Praise the Lord. We can eat calamari. Muriel's has some awesome calamari. We can praise Jesus over that. We can thank him for these things. See, neither celibacy or a form of diet sanctifies you or saves you. And these false teachers took things that God could be honored in like singleness and fasting, and they unbalanced them, and they went too far in one direction. But see, God loves marriage, and God loves singleness. God loves food. He created them all, and all of them can be enjoyed. Here it says, if given thanks for. So watch out for unbalanced preaching. So how can we be ready for false leaders and false teachers? Verse 6 tells us, it says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We have to train ourselves in faith and good doctrine in order to be ready to avoid false teaching. We are each responsible for training ourselves like marathon runners train, reading our Bible, studying the Scripture, praying over passages of Scripture that we don't understand, being ready to defend the truth, staying away from silly myths. Don't waste your time on unanswerable questions or fringe ideas. Instead, immerse yourself in who God is and in who you are and how God feels about you. Train yourself in godliness. Physical fitness is a big deal right now. People want to look sculpted and they want to look defined and they work hard at that. But is your faith sculpted? Is your faith defined? This verse says there are some benefits to physical fitness, but God, and he gave us a body that we need to take care of, but see, this body one day will pass away. How much more should we train our souls that will last for eternity? Training our faith will help you in every aspect of your life. So how much time do you spend a week working out your body? How much time do you spend a week working out your faith? If you're anything like me, if you exercise, it's an accident, right? 
It's, it wasn't planned beforehand. It's normally because I dropped something. And it was like behind the couch or something like that. But we cannot thrive as Christians by only training our faith accidentally. You will not happen into a close walk with Jesus. We have to be intentional. So what do you aspire to be? What do you have passion for? If you aspire to be a leader of the church, there are some things you have to have. There are some qualifications. And if someone wants to be a leader, they need to be worthy of being followed. He gives us that list of qualifications that describes a mature Christian and mature leaders. And we should all strive for these things. The church needs to be grounded Firmly in the truth, because false teachers are coming, and they're going to try and give you messages. Sometimes, it, it, I think when we think about this, we think about some kind of creepy guy with a big smile, right, that like is kind of has like the tongue of a snake or something like that, like we would see on a cartoon or something. But hey, these messages are going to come from you, sometimes from your family that is false teaching, sometimes from your television, sometimes from your friends, sometimes from a book that looks pretty good, but once you get into it, it really unbalances what the Bible says. And we need to be ready for these things because we don't want to be pushed off of our foundation, which is the gospel. False leaders will try to distract us with silly myths, and it will eventually work, the Bible says. People will abandon the church, but we must train ourselves in the faith like Olympic athletes, We must sculpt and define our faith. Are you waiting around for God to give you some sign on what you're called to do? Hey, you can volunteer. What's your passion? Are you pursuing mature Christianity? See, we all lead people. Every single one of us lead people. What matters is what direction you're leading them. And we never grow past the gospel. We only drive ourselves deeper into the gospel. We need to watch out for unbalanced preaching. Train yourself in the faith. This won't happen on accident. Let's stand on our feet and bow our heads. The worship band's going to come. Paul's giving instructions to this church in Ephesus. And these are some big ideas. And sometimes we can be a little bit overwhelmed when a verse and chapters can kind of have this big stuff. But it made it pretty obvious here that there's some things that we need to train ourselves in. We need to take responsibility. We need to make sure that we're grounded in the truth so that we do not get pushed off into lies. Every time we we think about these big ideas, is this right, is this wrong, we got to go back to what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? It's clear that the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So that old adage that people tell us all the time, listen to your heart, that is not a safe thing to do. Your heart can lead you astray. We've got to be grounded on the truth. Every head's bowed and eyes closed. The altar's open this morning. God dealt with your heart about absolutely anything or if you've got a special burden, you've got someone in your life that's sick or or financial issues, hey, this is the place to come to lay them down. You come now.